0: This is the InFocus podcast from The Hindu. Hello and welcome to The Hindu's In Focus podcast. Last week, India announced that the country had met the target of 10% ethanol blending with motor fuel ahead of time. The target for 20% blending had earlier been brought forward to 2025 from 2030. But is this the path that India should choose? Are there better alternatives to ethanol? What is the downside to the use of ethanol? To help us with some perspectives, we have with us today Dr. Charles Warringham, an Australia-based former academic and now independent researcher. He is also a guest contributor to the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis with a special interest in India's energy transition. Welcome, Dr. Warringham. First off, thank you. Uh Uh, Dr. Waringham, um, it's a pleasure to have you with us today to offer perspectives on the debate uh, on ethanol, the use of ethanol in motor fuels.
1: My pleasure too.
0: So um, I did read the report that you'd recently shared and where you touch upon comparison between land use that will help generate renewable electricity from solar or wind power versus land use for ethanol, which could be blended with fuels. And your opinion seems to be that uh, you're better off using land for electric vehicle charging than for the use of ethanol. Can you elaborate a bit on the methodology of your study and how you arrived at this conclusion?
1: Yes, of course. Well, actually, the original stimulus for this question followed from a couple of previous reports which I had prepared. One which was a, a broader look at the potential land use requirements for any net potential net zero target that India May have and has indeed, of course, subsequently announced for 2060. So, I've been quite interested in the question of the uh, potential land use requirements for renewable energy broadly, and a, a, a subsequent report on the field of agrivoltaics, which is the use of solar panels on agricultural land in such a way that uh, the agricultural production is either uh, not harmed unduly or, indeed, in some instances, with particular crops and conditions potentially in fact, uh, can benefit. And so as a result, of having looked at that work, the question of land use, I suppose, was quite prominent in my mind. So when I came across the ethanol roadmap, which the Indian government prepared and actually published almost exactly two years ago, uh, it struck me that it would be quite interesting to consider this question in terms of land use, because that was an element not present in the report, which is very comprehensive. It had many of the financial uh, and other key issues associated with the ethanol blending program. Land use was not one of them, and I thought that it would be interesting to, to look at this. So, in terms of the methods that I used, uh, it seemed appropriate to take a representative vehicle, uh, and particularly one which has both a conventional uh, internal combustion engine using petrol or petrol with ethanol, and an equivalent vehicle powered by batteries, an electric vehicle. So, I chose The Tata Tigor, just as a a representative vehicle, it could indeed have been one of many others. It could even have been a two-wheeler because the same basic principles would apply. And then uh, undertook a series of calculations based on uh, information from the the various uh, yields and other um, data concerning the ethanol crops, principally sugar, of course, but also maize as a representative grain crop and compared that with the land use requirements for the recharging of the EV equivalent vehicle um, over a period of of one year, since that's approximately the the annual agricultural cycle. Um, And the outcome was one that I found quite surprising. That was a very very big difference uh, in terms of those two.
0: So um, I see a couple of metrics from your report. One is that one hectare of land uh, for the charging of one electric vehicle for a year you know, if you juxtapose that against ethanol for the sake of purposes of blending, then you need one eighty-seven hectares. Is that accurate? Or did I get that right? Comparison.
1: Yes. So if you take basically a um, a given distance that you wish to drive the EV vehicle uh, version and the petrol vehicle version with ethanol, looking only at the ethanol component of its fuel, uh, then that is the comparison. That basically the ethanol um, driven version of the vehicle would require. 187 times as much land as the land required to recharge the battery of the um, of the electric vehicle for that same distance driven. The common metric there really then is the um, the land use per unit of distance travelled, which after all is the ultimate purpose of having any vehicle is to to drive a given distance. That's
0: right. So I I read from this graphic here that uh, from one hectare of solar energy or ethanol from sugar or maize, you have solar energy helping you travel 2.8 million kilometers versus um, anywhere between 11,000 and 88,000 kilometers for sugarcane, molasses, different kinds of molasses yielding ethanol. That puts it in perspective, I think.
1: No, that, that's exactly right. And of course, that's a a somewhat um, uh, artificial concept in terms of any individual vehicle. Good happens to be wonderful. Vehicles would last that long, uh, but in terms of expressing the difference in the distances that can be travelled based on a year's production from a hectare's worth of solar, yes, uh, that, that 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 is the difference. And I have to point out that uh, one of the things I wanted to try to do was to be fairly conservative with the estimates for the electric vehicle numbers. And so, for example, one assumption was that uh, in this scenario. EV version of the vehicle would be um, recharged only overnight, which would require storage and fairly considerable energy losses in the transmission of the electricity from the generating panels to wherever the charging is undertaken, as well as losses uh, due to uh, battery or pumped hydro storage and losses indeed associated with actually charging the vehicle. And there are reasonably good numbers available to make those estimates. So it's a fairly conservative estimate.
0: Okay, so it's interesting for a country like India, there are large, you know, wide swaths of land, very large pockets that go through cycles of drought, uh, which means there's not enough groundwater, you know, even otherwise for for daily use. Given this, and if ethanol comes predominantly from sugarcane cultivation in India, and I'm assuming that's right, if not, I'm open to correction. If sugarcane is the way to go, then you're actually, you know, drawing a lot more of groundwater. So, does it actually add weight to your argument that you're better off using solar, or do you see flip sides to the document?
1: Well, it, it does indeed uh, become a pretty important part of the the, the bigger picture here, because I'm, I think it's very well understood that uh, excessive water use, particularly in some regions, is a significant long-term threat to the viability of agriculture, and consequently the viability of agricultural communities. And you're right, sugar is indeed the predominant feedstock for ethanol currently in India. The roadmap envisages a very considerable expansion of um, of ethanol from grains, uh, which is much less water-intensive. But nonetheless, an expansion of the use of sugar is indeed anticipated. And uh, if we look at where sugar is uh, predominantly grown in India, it's in Uttar Pradesh, uh, particularly in the Western regions of Uttar Pradesh in Maharashtra and Karnataka. And if we look, for example, in the western part of um, of Uttar Pradesh, there's clearly an issue with groundwater depletion. And in fact, in one area I was reading recently that there's uh, depletion, groundwater dropping by nearly one meter per year in some regions. So yes, this does pose a a long-term threat.
0: So uh, let me just go on a tangent here. What portion of ethanol or what quantum of ethanol is produced for a given quantum of water use? Uh, You know, there are arguments. Uh, I studied a U.S. centric research, so it may not fully apply for India. But the argument was that ethanol production actually uh, uses much lesser water than uh, what is required for the cultivation of cotton, for example. It's 30 times as much or other kinds of uh, use that water is put to in the agricultural front. So have you come across such research reports if somebody has to defend ethanol, what would your argument be against the use of ethanol?
1: Well, that's a, that's a very good question. Of course, comparisons with, with other crops become extremely um, interesting and quite important. I'm not sure where the cotton growing regions are principally in India, because of course, one of the factors that needs to be considered there is the availability of water in different regions and also, of course, the seasonality of the crop. Uh, so these comparisons are not simply straight one-to-one comparisons. They need to take account of, uh, you know, the relative availability of water rather than the absolute quantities uh, that each crop uses. Uh, but, but I have certainly seen some estimates that suggest, uh, uh, for example, that uh, up to a couple of thousand uh, liters of water are required for the growing of each one kilogram of or one one liter of um, uh, ethanol produced from sugarcane. And perhaps as much again in involved in processing and uh, perhaps as much as a thousand liters of wastewater produced from the distilleries uh, as well. So water is a very crucial part of that whole ethanol distillation cycle. And of course, uh, when we compare that with, with maize, maize is a lot less water intensive. Um, it's also uh, tends to be um, grown as uh, more as a carif. Crop and uh, is perhaps less dependent upon, you know, the uh, availability of um, rainwater. Um, but nonetheless, um, overall, that's one of the reasons why the Indian government in the roadmap have suggested that grain ethanol becomes a larger component of the uh, feedstock.
0: So this is, you know, from someone who doesn't know too much of the science of automobiles, uh, namely myself. So how much? of blending is okay if I have to use it with traditional combustion engines. You know, we talked about 10% going up to 20%. How much farther can uh, a combustion engine take in terms of blending with petrol or diesel? Is that a figure that we have in mind?
1: Yes, uh, it's not my area of expertise, I must confess. However, what is clear and is acknowledged in the roadmap is that uh, most vehicles currently manufactured for the Indian market are able to take uh, E10 That is uh, 10% uh, ethanol content uh, without too much trouble. But there will be modifications required for E20 for many vehicles until such time as uh, new vehicles are manufactured with that specification in mind. And actually, that is one rather practical, I won't say roadblock, but certainly it is a consideration about the wisdom of this policy because there will be a very large-scale exercise involved in making those modifications to the existing fleet of vehicles. There are also at the extreme end, what they call flex vehicles, that is um, internal combustion engines that are designed to take any quantity of ethanol. And there may be some niche applications where that's actually quite useful and, and appropriate. I think Brazil is a, uh, a country that's looking at that uh, in particular, but I don't believe that's envisaged for the vast majority of uh, of vehicles. Yes, was there some damage that can be done. Certain components, some rubber and plastic and other components can be affected. And there's also an issue of tuning the engine so that it is um, operating as efficiently as possible, depending upon the ethanol content.
0: It's interesting you mentioned this because then we are only three years away from the ethanol 20% target that we've set for ourselves as a country. You said it's been advanced from 2030 to 2025. I remember that from the report.
1: Yes, that's correct. Um, Now, how realistic that target proves to be i think is somewhat unclear because there is that challenge of conversion of vehicles and there's also the issue of making e20 e20 fuel available throughout the country because for example there are certain requirements for storage of the of the product and uh petrol pump stations having to have um, additional tanks installed so there are some additional logistical problems to overcome i'm sure there could be in time, it probably is a question of uh, whether that race against the clock is one that can
0: be uh, can be won. So, if we look at um, electric, I mean, uh, generation of renewable energy for charging electric vehicles. and if I take the example of solar, uh, if I look at it in isolation, independent of comparisons with ethanol, etc., you know, our understanding of that, uh, is that is that. It's not forever. For example, the the solar panels that people put up, there's a certain lifetime to it, and I assume it was twenty five to thirty years, but it could be as less as twelve to you know fifteen years. So there's a certain capital cost to that, and then the maintenance of those farms. You know, I recently came across a factoid that said uh, India does offer producers the lowest uh, cost per unit of uh, renewable energy, but it levies a plethora of charges when you talk about interstate transmission. So there are certain costs that build up. So even if the land argument wins for EVs, um, is there enough action happening on the uh, the renewable energy front? Even though right now, renewables contribute to about 27% of all energy sources in India, power generating capacity that India has. So the land is one part, but do you think that this is adequate to convince the government saying, you know, this is the way to go. Let's go EVs and not uh, ethanol blending.
1: Yes, that's an extremely important question. And uh, there are some, some different aspects to it. Uh, one of which, of course, is that vehicles are used pretty well everywhere. They're extremely widely distributed. And one of the characteristics of renewable energy, as opposed to um, other forms, is that it is um, it also can be set up everywhere. So, uh, you know, one can think of a situation where Fairly widely distributed renewable energy generation is actually physically relatively close to the the load a load in this case being the vehicles and if one compares that to ethanol just again for a moment uh of course that the crops are grown in a particular region, and the distilleries are in a particular region, and the ethanol has to be transported to be blended and then sent around the country so there's there's a there's quite a difference there really it's much easier to send electrons down the wire than it is to send physical fuel around the country. So to that extent, I think um, those logistics, certainly in in the long run, favor electric vehicles. But there still remains a significant challenge in building out the distribution infrastructure to match the expected goals for renewable generation over the coming decade or so. And India is making enormous strides. I have to say, it's very impressive to see, for example, that just this last year, uh, there was a very significant increase in the increase in capacity for renewable generation of 17%. Effectively, it doubled in one year. And if it were to double again in coming years, this would essentially leave India in a position where it can certainly meet that 450 gigawatt target uh, that has been set and also um, enable these um, loads such as uh, electric vehicles to to uh, be recharged with that sort of level of generation that would 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 uh, ensue from that
0: any other challenges that you see that you know i might might have missed my eye uh, in terms of charging of evs you know down that path versus ethanol
1: uh, There one very interesting issue and it's it can be considered in as a problem to some extent but also Longer term, I think, a potentially very significant benefit to the entire electricity system in the country. And that is to what extent India leads the way on developing sound policies for vehicle to grid integration. Because in the most pessimistic scenario, where electric vehicles are simply charged as passive loads from the network, and that charging, to the extent that charging happens to coincide with peak loads you know, just before the monsoon, and you've got a heat wave and air conditioners are also running, that could be potentially quite uh, quite a significant additional load that would be overall uh, somewhat harmful to the operation of the electricity system. However, uh, it is possible to set up systems technically which enable two-way charging, and this fleet of new electric vehicles can be considered a store of electricity. And given the, the appropriate regulations and the appropriate incentives and policies. Um, we could see a situation where, in fact, that fleet of mobile batteries comes to the aid of the grid during periods of peak time. So, for example, if there are financial incentives for electric electric vehicle owners to charge at times when um, the uh, generation is perfectly adequate, particularly during uh, daylight hours, um, and give some of that electricity back with appropriate incentive schemes in periods of peak load, then this could actually end up being very beneficial. It's a big challenge, but it's one that uh, if India is able to work on and develop the policies and procedures early enough, um, again, it may become one of the world leaders in this because uh, it's you know, the, the, uh, the nation is at a stage in the development of its electricity system where it can afford to take some of these um, new policy ideas and really run with them and actually lead the world on, on doing this really, really well.
0: So do we have a predecessor precedent uh, in the form of rooftop solar, which have held and still does hold a lot of promise, but some time has passed and India has not been able to make the best of this because feeding back into the grid is not something many states encourage or even allow. So is there a policy issue there Has uh, it struck your eye?
1: I'm not too familiar with that, but I do understand. Uh, my understanding is that the rollout of rooftop solar in India has been really quite disappointing. And speaking as I am from Australia, uh, where we have huge uptake, I think it's fair to say that this is very much dependent upon policy and pricing, that given the right regulatory framework and the right incentives, people will rush to put uh, panels on their roofs because they see a very clear benefit from it. So I'm not too familiar with what some of the obstacles have been. Um, I believe there have been some pricing issues, for example, but uh, uh, certainly to the extent that those policies have not yet been properly formulated to really encourage the uh, much fuller uptake of rooftop solar, then one could consider that to be the opportunity that's there as well to um, try and address that uh, that issue.
0: So if I have to go back to your earlier point about the vehicle itself being able to store energy and then giving back to the grid when necessary. So it's interesting because right now in the Indian context, uh, vehicles that, that are chargeable electrically do not have adequate range, and that's one of the reasons why it's not really taken off. But I'm sure it's a matter of time and evolution. But at this point in time, when we don't even know if there is enough adequate charge, other than for office commutes, of course, which is like twelve kilometers, twenty kilometers to them at a maximum uh, in the average city. But if I have to, you know, go between two different cities and come back, then I'm not so confident. I don't want to wait on the highway while my uh, EV uh, vehicle is being charged. So how do you? Visualize this taking off where there's electricity stored in the battery and the vehicle owner is willing to give back to the grid beyond his own needs.
1: Good question. And this is certainly an issue that has, is, in a broad sense, been faced in other countries trying to do the same sort of thing. So, a very interesting study, for example, in the state of Oregon in the United States, where a research group had been commissioned to look at the issue of where you put your vehicle EV rechar- recharging stations along the major long-distance uh, routes in between the major cities for long-distance driving to ensure that there's an adequate system to support that that type of traffic. And uh, they came up with a system which um, actually made use of um, the concept of agrivoltaics, again, uh, in uh, areas of farmland, in between some of the major cities to uh, space out the recharging uh, infrastructure and to build a system that uh, potentially could be assist with that. But I would say, actually, that there's another facet to this in terms of policy challenges for India, because if one looks at uh, long distance transport, so intercity transport or in the railway system, you know 24 million railway passengers a day um, and somewhat slightly more than half of them being in the, the major metropolitan uh, systems, uh, that still leaves something like 11 million people, uh, COVID periods aside, who are traveling long distance by train. and Uh, Actually, if we want to have an efficient transport system, of course, people will always wish to drive their own vehicles. But there is competition on the railway lines, as we saw just uh, very recently, with 1,100 trains, passenger trains, long-distance passenger trains, cancelled in order to try to accommodate the transport of coal to um, deal with the the, the crisis that occurred. So I think there's a very real logistical question about how India sees the future of long-distance transport. Because one policy option would be to say, we actually want to have one of the world's leading long-distance passenger networks in terms of speed, comfort, efficiency, and price. Now, all those things together are pretty hard to achieve, Um, but we shouldn't look at this issue solely in terms of electric vehicles versus petrol vehicles. We should, I think, put it into the context of the entire transportation system. And I think that raises some other very interesting questions.
0: So this is very interesting, and I'm sure there's only more science and policy uh, decisions ahead of us. Uh, this is a field certainly worth watching. So uh, I've exhausted my list of questions, Charles. Uh, anything else you would have liked to have dwelt upon? There's been a very interesting conversation.
1: I think that's it, uh, Bharat. Um, very much thank you for the opportunity to talk about this. Uh, it's a It's a rather fascinating issue, and it's one that India is not alone in facing, I have to say, Uh, but uh, certainly given the scale and size of the Indian uh, economy and the challenges that uh, it's trying to meet, it's a very important one to get right. And that's why I wrote the report, I think, just to encourage a a broader context to looking at this uh, uh, ethanol
0: blending policy. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it.
1: Thank you very much.
0: In we will be back soon